Before we start today's episode, we wanted to provide a disclaimer regarding the audio quality. We had some technical issues with the recording, but we still feel the content of the interview is highly valuable and worth sharing. Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger Psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. On today's episode, we're talking about paradoxical therapy. Our guest is Dr. Randy J. Patterson, a psychologist and director of Change Ways Clinic, a private psychotherapy service in Vancouver, BC, Canada. He is author of How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, The Assertiveness Workbook, How to Be Miserable, and Your Depression Map. He's also the co-author of the free online antidepressant skills workbook. He presents lectures and workshops internationally on topics including mental health policy, cognitive behavior therapy, the nature and treatment of depression and anxiety disorders, and the failure to launch phenomenon. For more information, visit www.randypatterson.com. Hi, Randy. Thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to talk with you today. Well, I'm happy to be here. So to start out with an establishing question, what is paradoxical therapy and why can it be effective? The term paradoxical therapy is, um, frankly, a bit vague. Um, different people have different definitions of it. And essentially, it, it, one way that we could think of it is that it's any form of therapy that involves an indirect approach to a problem, uh, something where you're not attacking the problem dead on, especially an approach that seems counterintuitive or that seems to go in the wrong direction. If we think of it that way, almost any form of psychotherapy can be thought of as paradoxical in that the clients who come to see us um, have already tried to solve the problem. It's not the case that clients, you know, they have a problem, they come to see us. It's they have a problem, they try to solve it using a straightforward manner. Uh, That doesn't work. And then they come to see us. And so most forms of therapy involve doing something different. Uh, we're going to take them towards whatever it is that makes them anxious, which seems odd and strange to them sometimes. So in the case of my own work, um, my work uh, with my books, uh, How to Be Miserable and How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, these are um, based on the idea of hedonic forecasting or affective forecasting predicting how you will feel in the future based on what you do in the present. And a lot of this is is, um, related in some way to Daniel Gilbert's uh, uh, work with uh, his book, Stumbling on Happiness. The idea behind this is that human beings make most of their uh, decisions based on hedonic forecasting, even if they don't know what it is. Why am I going to marry that person? Why am I going to have this career? Why am I going to be a therapist? Uh, Why am I going to take this other route to work? I will be glad I did. You know, we could say that 95%, arguably 100% of of what we do is based on hedonic forecasting, even though, again, it's not a term that most people are aware of. And what Gilbert and others looking at this have studied um, and have have discovered is that human beings are just terrible at this. Uh, Even though we're doing it a hundred times a day, we're really lousy at predicting what'll make us feel good in the future. Um, And so it can be useful to look in the opposite direction to say, okay, well, what if it was my job to feel worse instead? What would I do? That sounds ridiculous. Uh, Why would you ever do that? Well, you know, it's something to do. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's something that you've spent your entire life doing one thing. Well, let's at least spend 20 minutes doing the other. And often it turns out that we've got great insight there. Um, for one thing, the road up into a, a better state of mind and the road down into a worse one is basically the same road. It just depends on whether you turn right or left, you know. Um, so it can be helpful to find the road that way. Um, And uh, we may also discover that we're already doing a lot of those things. You know, if we ask ourselves, what would I do if I wanted to be miserable? We realize, oh, I wouldn't exercise. Oh, wait a minute, I'm not exercising. Oh, I'd eat junk food. Oh, wait a minute, I'm already doing that. And suddenly our lack of satisfaction in our lives becomes 
maybe not so unpredictable after all. So aside from, you know, there's always very bad world circumstances going on, I feel like, but especially now. um, So aside from that, why do you feel like people are so generally unhappy? Because our culture has failed. Uh, We can view uh, a culture and indeed an economy as being a mechanism for the production of happiness, either the production of happiness for the many or for the few at the top. And, you know, a lot of people would argue, well, we're doing a great job of making uh, 1% of the population happy, not so great a job at making the rest of us uh, happy. Those of us who work in private practice uh, often see people in the 1% and we realize, actually, we're not doing such a great job for them either. We're doing a great job for their bank account, not so great a job for their psychology. Um, so we're really not creating a culture that produces life satisfaction very well. Um, in cognitive therapy, we look for underlying ideas or beliefs or assumptions that lead people into misery. You know, like, for example, I have to be perfect, otherwise I'm a complete and utter failure. Um, But we could apply the same principles of cognitive therapy to a culture and see, are there cultural ideas which uh, just, it turns out, don't work and lead us into a worse place? Um, many of the beliefs underlying materialism. You know, if I have enough toys, I'll be happy. Uh, that's a great idea. Uh, we tested it. Turns out it's not actually all that true. Um, fast food is great. You know, um, tested it. It is great in the short term. Long term, eh, not so good. Um, wouldn't it be great if we could create a culture where we don't have to schlep around everywhere and we can avoid getting any exercise? Um, yeah, sounds great. It turns out that we wind up um, having mostly inactive lives, mostly sedentary lives, which is one of the classic ways of making ourselves uh, be miserable. Isolation is a great thing, you know? Uh, turns out not so much. Complete individuality, wonderful thing. Well, it turns out we're pack animals. We're actually designed to be members of a tribe. So I think our our culture has a lot of um, underlying ideas about what it is to be happy, which are frankly false. We often think of people who are unhappy as being maladjusted. I actually think that many people who are dissatisfied with their lives are actually too adjusted. They've bought into exactly what the culture has been telling them to do, and it's not working. So I I think there's a lot of reasons that we, uh, we find ourselves less happy than we could be. And some of those have to do with uh, elements of our culture. Well, I think that's really interesting, Randy, because talking about how our culture has pretty much set us up to be miserable in a lot of ways or in ways that you haven't really thought about. So like taking activity out of our lives, um, walking or doing things that like really put us out in nature, but stick us in a car in rush hour and we're miserable and we're confined to the car those are all things that add up and and really do uh, constitute like a miserable culture. So I think that's very interesting. And going back to the last few years and why they've been obviously, you know, unprecedented in their uniqueness for feeling so um, miserable or having an impact on our happiness. What do you think the impact of the last few years has been on general happiness or morale? And why might this counterintuitive approach be helpful uh, for those feelings? Well, you know, by the last few years, I think you're probably referring to uh, COVID and isolation and all of that. And in some respects, I think the impact might be positive. Um, For example, we've spent more families and loved ones. Um, We've been able to cut away a lot of the um, unfulfilling things that we've, we've done. A lot of people are realizing, gosh, you know what? I don't like commuting after all. Uh, I've just gotten so used to it that I don't like it. Um, the pace has slowed down for a lot of people. That's probably helpful. And we've been forced to find pleasures on a smaller scale. I was interested that one of the industries that's boomed during COVID has been jigsaw puzzles. Uh. <laughs> a lot of people are doing stuff like that. There are many ways in which uh, it may have helped. And indeed, by sort of downshifting 
uh, we may have developed a greater appreciation for some of the stuff that we kind of habituated to. For example, the wonderful pleasure of going to a restaurant or a movie theater, things like that, which might, we might have taken for granted in the past. But indeed, there are some downsides. Uh, we know that um, people spend an enormous amount of time on looking at their screens. Uh, that's been increased during this period. And a lot of people are feeling like, gosh, you know, as things open up, what we really need to do is cut out some of these services that I've subscribed to. Um, the average American citizen before uh, COVID was spending uh, approximately 10 hours and 20 minutes per day uh, looking at screens, uh, whether phone or iPad or computer or television. Uh, and that's a prop, it's getting close to two thirds of their waking hours. And during during COVID, it, it almost certainly went up. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what the Nielsen people find with that. Uh, but that seldom leads to great satisfaction. Uh, we've given up much of what has sustained us. You know, some of that stuff wasn't it didn't have much point, but some of it did. You know, being around friends is important. Mm-hmm. Um, huge numbers of people are bereaved. Um, as we speak, uh, the United States is right on track uh, to uh, 1 million deaths. And so given there's about 300 and what, 330, 340 million people, if you know more than 340 people, there's a very good chance, uh, you know, you've lost at least one person uh, who you know. Um, there's been an increased polarization from people sitting in their silos online all the time and uh, becoming enraged by that. And, and as well, we're seeing each other or we have seen each other largely through social media, which means that we view ourselves with all of our foibles and our insecurities and the downsides of our lives. And then we look at others, we compare ourselves to others except what we're seeing is a highly curated version of them. Uh, one of the things that I point out in, in the book is that uh, it's not just that we can't keep up with the Joneses anymore. Uh, we definitely can't because we're only seeing the high points of the Joneses' life. We're also not even seeing, we, we also only see the high points of our own life when we look at our own uh, social media profiles. We can't even keep up to ourselves, our, our vision of who we are. Um, So I think that that's been uh, damaging in that there's that tremendous tendency to look down on ourselves or or do social comparisons with others and come up lacking. So I think there's a variety of ways in which it's probably uh, damaged us that probably outweigh the, the few benefits that have been gained. I think that's so interesting, the, that you can't even keep up with yourself because especially in, you know, a couple years of isolation, you're looking back at your own highlight reel, like, man, my life was so good. Like, I'm so far from who I was two years ago. And I think that's such an interesting phenomenon that people might not easily recognize in themselves that they're doing it. Um, So that's really, that's really fascinating. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about how how you came up with the concepts um, that you utilize in your book, How to Be Miserable, and um, your other book, How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, uh, where the whole idea of how to be miserable came from. Well, I was uh, the director of a prevention hospitalization program at UBC Hospital. Uh, These are people who had been hospitalized with major depression and discharged, and the readmission rate was enormous. (laughs) Uh, Not surprisingly, people were living in a depressogenic life, got got depressed, got hospitalized, and got discharged into exactly the same depressogenic life, often with very few... Um, bits of education about self-care and, and skills. And so we were doing a, this, this program, trying to train people in, in self-care, self-management skills, reactivating their life, behavioral activation, that kind of thing. And I thought, gosh, you know, most of these people have really been through the ringer, right? The average number of re- hospitalizations had been two. Um, and most of those people had received considerable treatment before they were ever hospitalized. And so 
if I just waltzed in there and said, oh, CBT is the most wonderful thing ever, well, you know, we're going to completely fix you up, that probably wasn't going to go over very well. I was going to get shot down. And so I decided to do something that was a little bit um, unexpected, perhaps. I said, look, uh, did anybody notice the $10 million in the middle of the table? And of course, there was no $10 million in the middle of the group room table. Um, so they thought that I was just a little strange. Uh, but I said, imagine that you could win that money, say, next Thursday. If Thursday morning you can feel worse than you do now, what would help you to feel worse? Let's just take that on. And I'd go around the room and try and get one thing from everybody. And what I quickly noticed is that after a halting start, people began coming up with all kinds of stuff and they began talking over each other. And it became this sort of cacophony of misery uh, where people were coming up with all these different ideas and getting quite enthusiastic, which is hard to do with the group of depressed people. I thought, ah, this is good. And then I was able to ask, now when, when you wake up in the morning and it's already there, you already feel terrible what are you tempted to do? And people would begin saying things like, well, stay in bed, don't eat or binge eat, uh, you know, and do many of the things that they had just come up with. So when we're already depressed, we are tempted to do precisely that which will make us more depressed. And I think that that's a general principle of certainly of depression, but also of many of the psychological difficulties that we find ourselves in, that the mood or the, uh, the problem itself self-promotes. It makes you want to do exactly what will make, make the problem more intense. And that was a bit of a revelation for people. So people could see immediately, oh, so if I did the opposite, yes, that would probably be helpful. Well, I think that's really interesting, Randy, because when we think of you walking into a room and saying, I've got all these great CBT strategies that are going to help you, of course, that would fall flat. But then coming up with sort of a way to, you know, circumnavigate that um, and getting creative with with the issue at hand of, of, of focusing on the, the negativity or really diving into that part um, obviously had a much greater impact. Um, so we know that's effective. But Going back to talking about the brain chemistry and, and, and patterns, why is it that our brains tend to go to the negative, just generally speaking? I, I think it's an evolutionary adaptation. I mean, we weren't evolved to, to be happy. We were evolved to survive and, and pass along our genes. Um, and uh, if you're in an environment where there's, you know, 10 safe things happening and one saber-toothed tiger over there, we're going to spend most of our time looking at the saber-toothed tiger. So we've really adapted to look for the bad stuff. Uh, we think of this as a depressive trait, but in actual fact, I think it's just a human trait. We automatically gravitate to what's dangerous, what's threatening, what might go wrong. Um, we're not, we're not, kind of designed to look for, oh, look, things are fine. You know, we tend to get automatically suspicious. And so in, in a sense, uh, happiness is an unnatural state for, for any extended <laughs> period of time. Um, so since we tend to lean toward those negative emotions, how and what can we learn from, from generally our negative emotions? The emotions are basically a steering system for human behavior. That's what they're for. You know, the problem is that they evolved in, in a primitive environment where the best thing that you could do was not necessarily the best thing that you can do now. So if you're afraid of something, run away. Good chance it's really dangerous. Today, if we're afraid of something, it might be, you know, pussycats or, uh, you know, high places, which are perfectly safe bridges, uh, and so on. So many of our fears today are telling us run away, run away, run away. Not a helpful thing for us to actually do. Depression makes us want to withdraw that in the long run intensifies depression. Anger makes us want to hit somebody. That's probably not a good idea in most circumstances. So it's tempting just to say, oh, the emotions are completely obsolete. They're just telling us 
you know, stupid things, but, or we can call them disorders if we like, we call them anxiety disorders or mood disorders or addictive disorders in the, in the cause of, uh, a case of happiness. Uh, but we can learn from them if we pay attention and don't automatically give in to the temptations and, and realize we may need to rewire certain bits of that. For example, if I'm feeling afraid of something, but it's actually a fairly innocuous situation, like a perfectly safe bridge or going into a grocery store or something like that, then I can use my anxiety as my cue to lean in and move towards that which uh, which makes me want to retreat. And that's really how to have a bigger life. So I think that's some of the stuff that we can get out of positive or rather negative emotions is uh, sort of a signposting uh, to a, a better life, provided we're using it consciously. And going back to your book um, and negative emotions and misery, you talk about um, column A and column B, the two different types of misery to be experienced. Can you explain a little bit about that and how it's used in your book? Yeah, one of my great fears with uh, calling the book How to Be Miserable um, was, was that people would who, who are not having a great time in their lives would think, oh, this, is, this book is entirely about victim blaming. This is about, mm-hmm. oh, you're unhappy and this is all your fault, which is absolutely not my intention. Thankfully, I haven't been criticized, much to my surprise, that much uh, about that. Uh, but in the book, in the be- beginning of the book, I talk about this idea that the factors which lead us into miserable states can be divided broadly into two categories. Column A are all the things that are outside your control, you know, lousy economy, the fact that there's a war somewhere on earth taking place, um, the fact that climate change is occurring and you do not have the capacity to change that globally, at least single-handed, as well as the things that have happened to you in the past. You don't own a time machine, so you can't go back and change them. The things that you've done, you did have control over, but it's too late. I mean, you you did it, right? You drove drunk, you, whatever it was that happened. Uh, you, you can't go back and change that at this point. So those are all the column A factors. And when you're feeling discouraged, it's tempting to think, well, they're all column A factors, right? It's all outside my control. Column B are the things that are at least theoretically under your control. If there were no column B factors, there would be no point in psychotherapy because all of psychotherapy is about column B factors. Uh, Things like, theoretically, I don't get much exercise, I could get more exercise. You know, maybe it's really hard for me to figure out decent nutrition, but supposedly I could eat properly. Um, I could work on my way of thinking about things. Um, I could supposedly reduce my screen time. These kinds of things. Also, column B also includes how I react to column A factors. You know, so I might react to a lousy economy by sitting at home and not working on my resume and just saying, well, I'll never get a job anyway. Or I could use that as as a way of saying, oh, so I'm going to have to work harder, actually, to get a job. So I'm going to put out twice as many uh, resumes as I would have otherwise. So the way that we react to things are column B factors. And, and, and psychotherapy, again, is all column B. And, that's, and the book is all column B. It's the strategies to make yourself feel miserable or obviously not um, that, uh, that you have some control over. At least some people do some of the time. So one of the ways that you, uh, one of the strategies for being uh, miserable is to set vapid goals. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the difference between vapid and smart goals uh, that you present in How to Be Miserable. Yeah, I sat around with pen and paper working that one out for quite <laughs> some time because it's, it's a cliche. I'm sure everybody listening is familiar with the concept of smart uh, smart goals, uh, which is an acronym. And the acronym is is used by different people to mean different things. In my case, I think of it as your goal, an immediate goal, that is a goal for this week, should uh, obey certain rules. An ultimate goal, like learn French, 
maybe I'm a little vague about that. Do I want to learn it well enough to translate you in or just enough to find a bathroom in Paris? I don't know. Uh, but for a specific goal, something I'm going to do this week, it should be specific so I know how to do it. Action-oriented, A, action-oriented, uh, not to feel good. Uh, realistic and time-defined, meaning when am I going to do this? And, you know, standard rules about setting immediate goals for the near future. Vapid goals basically is just a way of, of uh, turning that on its head. Uh, and in my uh, uh, term for it, or my, my way of using it, it was uh, vague things like, oh, find my passion. You know, how am I going to do that? Uh, amorphous uh, things like work harder. I'm going to work harder this week. Uh, how will I know if I've done that? I won't. Pie in the sky. So I'm going to try and set goals that are completely out of reach, like become a billionaire or something. Uh, irrelevant and delayed. You know, I'm going to do that someday, as opposed to this week or tomorrow. Um, disobeying the, goal, the rules about how to set decent immediate goals is a classic way of getting yourself stuck in the mud so that you don't actually make any progress. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the common things that we've brought up multiple times in the conversation, whether it be with how to stay miserable, um, goals for ourselves, or just what's making us all generally a pretty miserable feeling is exposure to screen time and how much of our life has been tethered to a screen. Um, can you talk about why this uh, relationship we have with our screens is a good way uh, to stay miserable and maybe even expanding on that some of the ways that we can try to manage that relationship um, in, in a realistic way. One of the things that I do, you know, based on the book is I do public talks on this topic of how to be miserable. As a matter of fact, the book uh, came out of a public talk, you know, once I had this technique from this, this group therapy program that initially I thought was kind of silly uh, um, I, I began doing a talk called How to Be Miserable with the idea that nobody was going to show up to this thing and we could just go off to the pub or something. Uh, it turned out uh, people were very interested in that. So I do talks on it. Uh, and one of the things that I do is I take a little flashlight and it looks a little bit like, if people have seen Men in Black, the uh, flashy thing which wipes people's memories out once they've seen an alien that they're not supposed to see. So I bring this thing out. I remind people of the movie and I tell them, uh, you can uh, retain uh, a favorite memory of yours. So you can protect one memory from the flashy thing. And uh, what I would like you to do now is, is find a memory that you don't want to lose. So just any memory at all, uh, you, a great memory from your life, that you would not want to uh, to lose. And so people are doing it. They're not entirely sure why. And then I ask them a question. Okay, in that memory, are you looking at a computer? Uh, are you looking at your phone? Are you looking at the television? And, and if so, put your hand up. And in a room of 200 people, two or three people put their hand up because they got a text message saying, oh, so-and-so is out of hospital you know, or something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, very few of our great memories in life have to do with staring at a screen. Um, the things that we're glad to have accomplished, the things that we're glad to have done, the things that built our skills tend to be in non-screen time. And given that only a very small minority of our hours are in non-screen time these days, I think people are having more impoverished lives. Um, people are doing things, I'm constantly hearing people, oh, why, why are we doing this? Oh, it kills time. Time is the only resource you've got. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I'm doing this so that I can dispose of gold. Um, why do you want to dispose of gold? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so um, I, I do encourage people to look at their screen time, monitor it, and see how much, how much of it you're getting because most people are not aware of how much they're, uh, they're looking at screens. Uh, the average number of times that a person checks their phone in a day is 160. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it really is astonishing. But 
I think that works out to about every six waking minutes. Oh my goodness. Uh, you're checking your phone. Um, so ways of doing it, uh, you know, I encourage people to uh, use screen monitoring software uh, to be actually looking at the screen time reports on their phone, on their computer, and so on. Uh, but also to just very deliberately schedule um, schedule events and do things in your life that don't involve screens. I encourage people to do something that makes them feel extremely ins- unsafe. I say, what would it be like if you left your phone at home and went grocery shopping? And you would be amazed how difficult it is to get people to do that. Yeah. And they also believe that this is a fundamentally unsafe thing to do, right? Not to have a phone with you. That's, I mean, that it is a safety device. It's very important that you have your phone with you at all times. Despite the fact 20 years ago, of course, nobody did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's become, it's become sort of mandatory, uh, despite the fact that for the vast majority of human history, we haven't had it, seem to have mostly survived. Right. So new experiments like that, I, I think is, is helpful. That uh, pickup thing just blows my mind. The amount of times you pick up your phone and then when you think about it, you're like, oh, that actually makes sense. If it's anywhere next to me, I'm likely picking it up to look at something. And most of the time, I don't even know why I was picking it up to look at it in the first place. <laughs> and also, just to say, with your um, presentation of talking about everyone thinking of their favorite memory, as I was sitting here thinking, of course, mine did not involve a screen either. And I think that's a really compelling point um, that so much of our life and good memories exist out of sitting on a in front of a screen, even though it does take up so much of our time. Um, yeah. So I thought that was really compelling. I think if you if you sat down and, and tried to come up with 200 good memories that you would not want to lose, one of them might be, you know, seeing Star Wars for the first time or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the vast majority of them are not going to uh, involve staring at a screen. Um, so the the good memory density is low for screen time. Mm-hmm. Um, so another concept you talk about is uh, for, for being miserable is how to become a toxic optimist. Um, and I feel like I related to that term previously. I, I don't feel like I relate to it anymore, but can you expand on what that is and why that would make you more miserable? Yeah, optimism just sounds like a really great concept we've all cultivated in ourselves. And our culture actually... Uh, kind of promotes that idea that we should all be uh, optimistic all the time. But I would argue that optimism can lead us into as much trouble as pessimism does. Um, If you think about addictions, you know, I can try heroin, I'm not going to get hooked. You know, that's not going to happen to me. Uh, I can have that uh, other, uh, another glass of uh, wine, and I won't have a hangover tomorrow. That's optimism, uh, often unfounded. Um, I'm sure I haven't had enough alcohol to really impair my driving. Drunk driving is a product of optimism. All gambling is a product of optimism, because if you didn't believe you were going to win, why would you ever do it? Um, bankruptcies, corporate bankruptcies, um, wars, you know, uh, despots believing that this is going to go well for them. Uh, you know, we will be greeted with open arms by the people whose country we're invading and whose families we've killed. Uh, tends not to happen, actually. Um, you know, utopian fascism uh, is, is really a kind of product of, uh, of optimism of a sort, you know, maybe not optimism that we would have, but uh, but of some environmental destruction. You know, I think the planet is really in significant danger or not so much the planet because planets, of course, don't need atmospheres and they don't need human beings and they don't need animals or plants in order to exist. Uh, but the carrying capacity of the planet is in danger in part because we have this optimistic idea that we can go on using resources at an unlimited level and somehow it'll work itself out, we'll figure it out, and it won't be such a problem. If you total it up, I suspect that more human difficulties have been created from optimism than from pessimism. In an individual person's life, you know, that's why people don't engage in safe sex, don't protect themselves, go boating without... Uh, life jackets and and so on 
many of the disasters in people's lives are produced by not being aware of potential dangers. It's almost like ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Yeah. Except it turns out it's not so much bliss. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really um, interesting thought that more damage has come from optimism than pessimism. Um, Mainly for the fact that I guess I have always viewed optimism as sort of toxic in certain situations, especially um, when a more realistic, like a realist approach um, seems to fit. And especially when we're talking about miserable situations or um, things where not all of the uh, of the data is being um, looked at accurately and we're just hoping for the best. That really puts it into context for me, um, especially on those big scales of climate change and wars and and things like that. Um, And kind of going back to just the the thought of how to be miserable and this counterintuitive approach to handling misery and and, and depression, really, um, why was it so compelling for the 20-something age group? Um, What about that time in life is so um, receptive to that kind of approach? You know, when I'm seeing clients, uh, I think that, you know, these are typically very capable people like why are they needing to come to see me i think what's happening for many is that there is a turn on life's highway that is a little too sharp uh, a little too sudden or too many things happening all at once um and, and that that causes us difficulty uh, i think of half the job of a, of a clinician is helping people manage the curves in life Uh, I think that the transition from dependent adolescence to independent adulthood is a fundamentally tight curve. Uh, It's a difficult one. It's, it involves a change in usually in home, uh, in how everything gets funded and financed, uh, how you guide yourself, whether you're allowed to use substances or not, uh, you know, whether or not that happened before before it was legal or not. Uh, but uh, there's, there's so many changes that happen around that time that it's difficult to navigate. It's like going 80 miles an hour around a corner. So that's one reason. I think another is that in our culture, if you think of attachment and child raising, there's really two tasks. One is protect the kid and the other one is prepare them for your death. <laughs> um, <laughs> In other words, so they can handle things themselves. Uh, we're really good these days at protecting kids. We have sacrificed to some extent their independence. And so there are a lot of kids who are reaching 20. And, oh, my gosh, like they would never know how to use a washing machine or solve a problem or deal with billing or, you know, um, Capacity seems relatively low for some, not all, obviously, but some young adults. So a lot of young adults, you know, haven't been, haven't been, haven't experienced a lot of failure. Uh, schools often are trying to avoid the failure experience for young adults. And I, I think this is a terrible idea. I think this is one of the best things you can experience in, uh, in school is failure because you have to experience it, survive it and realize, oh, okay, so I don't have to worry too much about that. Because in adulthood, most of the things we do fail. So that's another. And and the third would be uh, that our culture tells them nonsense. We are supposedly preparing them for adulthood. And yet what we're telling them about adulthood, you know, we're doing all these Santa Claus ideas, which is why actually that section of the the 20-something book, I I called it Santa wasn't wasn't the only lie. Um, uh, there are many lies that we tell people, um, things like, uh, unconditional positive regard is a real thing and you should anticipate it. Unconditional positive regard does not exist, right? It is a therapeutic tool. It is not something to expect. Uh, good relationships don't have problems. And one of the worst for, uh, for many young adults is this idea of, of pursuing your passion, that what you need to do to have a decent life is you need to uh, find your passion and pursue it uh, single-mindedly. And and buried inside this is the idea that your passion is sitting out there just waiting to be discovered. You know, it's, it's, 
like a ball in the tall grass. You, you know, one day you're going to walk around and go, oh my gosh, here it is. Uh, n- passions are not discovered. Nobody, uh, we need to be telling young people, nobody discovers their passion. That's not how it works. We build them, right? We have to construct them. Uh, and we do that with experience and effort. Uh, so many of the young stuck uh, young adults that I see, uh, so the so-called failure to launch population, are feeling paralyzed because they don't know what their passion is. And it comes as a bit of a revelation when I say, most people don't. Most people don't know what, what, what their passion is. Uh, and, and frankly, if you, don't, if you don't know what your passion is, uh, there is a secret behind that. You don't have one. Uh, so, you, you know, it doesn't mean you won't have one, but you've got to do some work and, and, and try to um, uh, cultivate interests and desires and uh, bits of expertise. And greater interest will come from that. Uh, but sitting on the couch waiting for your passion to appear is not going to help. So I think there's a variety of reasons why why young people are particularly prone to this. And I think part of it is that we spent a, we created a culture of child raising, and what we needed to create was a culture of adult raising instead. I think that's interesting um, about the passion thing, and I feel like I've been on my own sort of journey learning the opposite of that. You know, that feels like a uniquely millennial problem. The the passion thing, like that feels like our generation was just like, you know, if you're not doing your passion as your career, if you're not getting paid um, to do this thing you love, then you're unsuccessful. And I feel like one of the the most groundbreaking things I read was like, what you do for work doesn't actually have to be like your creative passion. And And most of the time, you know, like if you love cooking and you become a chef, you're doing that and your living is based on that. And it's going to start to build some sort of like resentment almost toward your passion. If that's what you're, you're relying on to feed yourself. Right. It's true. I'm making your passion, your career is a great way of killing that passion. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So going back a little bit um, in, in your book, the, for 20 somethings, you talk about, how sometimes we as people uh, struggle with the idea of happiness and having it be something that we feel like we can't achieve. And that's because, you know, to do so, to follow your own happiness would be to sort of disengage from the rest of the world and all the suffering that's happening. Can you talk about why that is such a hard concept for us to, to move past and be able to realize that our happiness, you know, isn't going to stop the world problems from happening, but, you know, we sort of live with it. I, I think that it's sort of almost a moral principle that people have taken on, which is that if there is suffering in the world, if there is bigotry in the world, then you shouldn't be happy. Um, and, and it's almost a moral failing if you are. And hidden in that, I think, is an assumption that somehow you being unhappy is actually solving this societal problem, um, which it isn't, uh, or or it's it's a, an indicator of your virtue. You know, when we do OCD treatment, we often talk about things like um, thought action fusion, which is the idea that if I have an image of, uh, let's say, mother having a terrible accident, then it's as though I have created that in her life. Like I, so I, the, the thought is the, is the sin, if you like. Um, but I think there's also something that we might call emotion action fusion, which is that if I'm miserable about the strife in the world, then this is a moral good and I'm actually accomplishing something. I'm actually helping, uh, helping something. I, I was struck by that throughout COVID when, um, uh, I, I have a bit of an ear for this when uh, the anchor is saying something like, how worried should we be about this? And I'm constantly shouting back <laughs> at them saying, not at all, not at all, because the more worried you are, it doesn't do anything to a virus. It's pointless, right? Wear your mask, get your vaccine, worry. Well, you know, if it happens, it happens. But should you be worried? No. No, it's it's not a it's not useful. Uh, similarly, deliberately, you know, being miserable is not actually going to solve these problems. Uh, I encourage people to think about 
you know, the most active, engaged, effective people in the world, look at them and see, do you see any joy in their lives? And typically you do, you know, uh, whoever your particular heroes might be. And I give the example of Nelson Mandela or the Dalai Lama and so on. These seem like at least intermittently quite cheerful people, uh, despite the fact that they're really dealing with major problems. Um, so action is what counts. You know, you, you sitting on the couch crying about climate change actually doesn't actually, uh, doesn't accomplish anything. And it's not a, it's not a moral good. If anything, it, it's almost a moral bad in that it prevents you from acting. Sure. And to hear you say that you're listening to the anchors and your kind of alarm bells are going off when they're saying, how worried should we be? Or, you know, what, what kind of things can we be doing? You're, you're saying, okay, yes, wear a mask or do the things in your control, but just sitting there on the couch and crying or worrying is, is not helpful to the situation at all. And those kind of questions kind of direct the line of thinking to that you should be sitting there being worried. Um, so that's really interesting because obviously people don't recognize uh, where their thought process is going necessarily into like a unproductive territory. Um and going back to just misery in general, why is it so motivating? Um, why do many of us feel this way that misery is is a motivation in life in many different ways? Yeah, I think that that's that's uh, uh, one of the distorted beliefs that underlie uh, a, a lot of things. This idea that you know, it's almost as though we learned it in first year psychology. Really, it's it's the principle of negative reinforcement, which is if I'm in an unpleasant state, and like chronic pain, and I take an opiate, and the unpleasant state goes away, then that's a reward for taking the opiate, and that's likely to lead me towards addiction. Um, so the 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 concept. Um, is that if I make myself miserable, I will write the essay. You know, if I dwell on failure and I'll be such a disappointment to my family and everybody else and this catastrophe will happen, that will make me so unhappy that it will be enormously motivating for me to get off the couch and actually work on the essay or finish the book or get my page proofs done or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. That can be viewed as an empirical question, a hypothesis, test it out, see if it works. For the vast majority of us, it turns out that doesn't work. Many of us discovered that that actually did work in high school for some reason. I've never figured this out, why this is. But in high school, if you terrified yourself, you would study. In adulthood, there seems to be some point you know, I don't know, it's late, late teens, early 20s for most people. It just stops working. I don't know why it stops working. It just does. Uh, so terrifying yourself about the lousy consequences of your own inaction just winds up being paralyzing. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, produce action. But we, we maintain this idea that if I tell myself how evil I am for not doing something, that will make me want to do it. You know, if I criticize myself for being such a slob, that'll make me clean out the garage. Turns out it doesn't, you know. Definitely doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. You talk about uh, the early adulthood being like the image of a waiting room. And I think that's a really, a really great metaphor. Can you expand on that and talk about how you think, um, you know, it, it's all in... We're, we're much more in control than we think we are. Yeah, the metaphor that I give to clients and, and that I talk about in the book is imagine you're in a waiting room and it's got all these doors around it, you know, these offices or what have you. And there's actually a thousand doors and they're all closed and they all look uh, pretty firmly locked uh, and so on. And they're barred to you. Uh, you can never do this. You can never do that. You'll never uh, publish a book. You'll never become a psychologist. You will never uh, uh, have your own income. You will never be able to move communities. You will never have a partner. You will never, you will never, you will never. And, and it often it's very persuasive because it's not obvious that you will have those things. And it's not certain that you will. But one of the 
uh, you run, I run the risk of, of, you know, like, well, take it from an old guy. This is, this is the truth of life. One of the advantages of getting older, though, is you look back and you realize that many of the doors that you yourself thought were barred to you, it turns out weren't. And it turns out that a lot of those doors are actually unlocked. All you have to do is push on them. Now, there is such a thing as discrimination. There is such a thing as sexism, as racism, as homophobia, and so on. Things that bar doors unfairly to people. But there are many more doors open than we that are that is obvious to us uh, when we're in, in early adulthood. And we will discover that later on. Most of us will look back and think, oh, I never thought this would happen. I never thought I'd be able to do that. And, and uh, it, it turns out that our perception of helplessness is oh, tends to be overblown. So one thing that really stuck out to me in your book, too, uh, and I'm going to quote you, that you said, the worry produced despair and the despair produced nothing. Can you talk a little bit about that? I feel like that concept just really stuck with me and it feels really relatable. And I want to know a little bit more about that. This is really talking about the idea of using, of worrying, which feels so important. You know, I think worry brings with it, not just uh, misery, but also a feeling of it being important. Like I should be worried about this. I should be worried, harkening back to something we spoke about earlier. Um, and Yet, if you look at the consequences, you look, okay, so I spent three hours last night, wide awake in bed, worrying about things. How many of those problems did I actually solve? Uh, None. You know, we solve very few problems lying awake in bed. Uh, So that activity, which feels important, worry makes us feel like, I need to be thinking about this. I need to give up on this, not go out tonight, sit on the couch and really think this through, it tends not to produce anything but despair. And it's how to produce despair in a lot lot of ways. Um, And so worry tends not to solve problems. Uh, As a matter of fact, we can think of two categories of thought, worrying and problem solving. Um, the work that you're doing in the middle of the night or on the couch digesting your own stomach lining is not probably solving problems. So despair doesn't actually lead us in any positive direction. It's normal. It's natural. We will all experience despair in our lives, but it tends not to be productive. In your book, you talk about optimizing misery and worry seems like a natural, um, mechanism to really stay in that miserable state. Um, What are some of your personal strategies for optimizing misery going in line with the theme of the book um, for how to stay or be miserable? Yeah, personally, you know, I know that if I'm not exercising at all, that'll, that'll help quite nicely after a while. And it's, there's very little of an instinctive feel to it. You know, you'll find yourself just, dragging around not feeling quite as good and 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 in my case and I'll, I'll be thinking well, why is this and i'll suddenly realize oh wait a minute i haven't been exercising very much or i've been eating kind of garbage food or i've been looking at screens too much or i've been working too hard and not seeing uh friends and associates um one of the things you know it comes back to is um for me is a person I met in the 1980s, uh, a man by the name of Quentin Crisp. Uh, very unusual person. Anybody familiar with Sting's song, An Englishman in New York? An Englishman in New York is about Quentin Crisp. Right? That's who he's singing about. And in the video, you can actually see uh, uh, Crisp in the background. Um, met, this, met this man, a very unusual um, uh, person, um, whose life I won't go into in, in, in detail, but he wrote a number of books, uh, things like How to Become a Virgin, uh, Manners from Heaven, uh, the book of his life, um, which was The Naked Civil Servant, based on his life as a, as a life model for uh, government art schools in Britain. Um, and one of his central concepts was the idea of fashion versus style. 
fashion is what you do as a way of conforming to other people's idea of the way that you should be living your life. And style is about identifying the ways that you are unique and different and bringing that to the fore and making that your, um, you know, the sort of signature aspect of your being. Um, and that thought just keeps coming back to me. That's one of my favorite bits in the book. I sometimes think that people, maybe my editors would, would have looked at that and thought, well, this seems like so different than some of the other techniques. I actually think it's quite central is realizing that fitting in is uh, vastly overrated and, and, you know, being who you are uh, is vastly underrated, but is actually a secret path towards greater fulfillment in your life. I love the comparison between style and fashion. I think that really um, sums up the feeling of fitting in or your own self-expression. So I really identify with that analogy. Um, Randy, do you have any thoughts for our listeners? Any final um, thoughts you want to share on your work or how to be miserable? It's a, it's a lovely theoretical concept until you explore it in your own life. And, and so I encourage people at my talks, I encourage them here to spend 20 minutes. And if that seems like too long, then go for 10. But take out pen and paper and ask yourself the question that I asked clients years and years and years ago. If my goal was to feel less satisfied with my life, more miserable in my life, what would I do? And what will occur to you is a feeling of stupidity and pointlessness, and this is ridiculous, and it's obvious anyway, and so on. And just tolerate that feeling and do the damn exercise anyway, and see what comes up. And what will come up in the first two minutes is probably nothing, uh, but just stay there with it, and more ideas will come to you. And you begin realizing, wait a minute, maybe maybe more of my life's dissatisfaction is in my own hands than I think. Um, and it, it doesn't feel like that's what's going to happen. But for many of the people who do the exercise, I hesitate to say most, but I, I kind of think it's most. That is what happens. Explore that box that you have left unopened in the corner of your life and ask yourself, what would I do if I wanted to feel worse? see what comes out of it. Probably a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Randy. This has been such a great conversation. And, you know, now we all know how to be more miserable. Definitely. Thank you, Randy. (laughs) This was great. Um, And I had a lot of light bulb moments with talking about optimism and, um, and really just kind of exploring ways in which we're miserable that we probably don't even realize. Um, So I really appreciate all of your insight. Well, thank you. This has been fun. In How to Be Miserable, psychologist Randy Patterson outlines 40 specific behaviors and habits, which, if followed, are sure to lead to a lifetime of unhappiness. On the other hand, if you do the opposite, you may yet join the ranks of happy people everywhere. There are stacks upon stacks of self-help books that will promise you love, happiness, and a fabulous life. But how can you pinpoint the exact behaviors that cause you to be miserable in the first place? Sometimes when we're depressed or just sad or unhappy, our instincts tell us to do the opposite of what we should, such as focusing on the negative, dwelling on what we can't change, isolating ourselves from friends and loved ones, eating junk food, or overindulging in alcohol. Sound familiar? This tongue-in-cheek guide will help you identify the behaviors that make you unhappy and discover how you, and only you, are holding yourself back from a life of contentment. You'll learn to spot the tried and true traps that increase feelings of dissatisfaction, foster a lack of motivation, and detract from our quality of life, as well as ways to avoid them. So get ready to live the life you want, or not. This fun, irreverent guide will light the way. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. 
Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show. And we hope that you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our Quick Tips for Therapists email program, and more. Visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians dash club for more information.